So it was a Tuesday morning, and I would have been in sixth grade. And I remember I was in sixth grade because I was at home on a school day, which was a Tuesday. So that doesn't make any sense. Sixth grade was the only year that I was homeschooled. Well, that also doesn't make any sense. Well, if you were my mother and you tried to homeschool me for a year, you would know exactly why I was only homeschooled for one year. <laughs> but this particular Tuesday morning, I was sitting on our green leather couch watching TV because my mom wasn't home. This is why I was only homeschooled for one year. And I remember that day very vividly because it was about at 11.30 that as I was flipping through the channels, probably waiting for the prices right, that the news of the Columbine school shooting broke just 10 miles away. And it was another Tuesday morning. I was in the shower. And I thought I was living in the future. Because while I was in the shower, I was listening to a waterproof radio. Life could not get any better. And I remember when the musical programming was interrupted at just around 6.45 my time with an announcement that a plane had flown in to the World Trade Centers. We all have those moments where you will always remember where you were when. And as you get older, you live through more and more of those moments. And as Peter writes this second epistle, he's an older man, but he's very aware of the nearness of his death, in large part because Christ told him. But we'll get a running start in verse 12 of 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in this present truth, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. He's burdened to pass on some of the essentials of his life experiences. We've already seen how he exhorted the church to be diligent in growing their faith. Diligent meaning that we're not just sitting around passively letting God grow us in his good time. But being faithful and active, being a participant in this work of hurrying up our sanctification, to be good stewards of every breath that we are blessed with, with a God-first mindset. And as he's relaying these things that he wants to ensure stand out, as part of his last, or as some of his last communication, he shares one of these, you'll always remember where you were when moments. But it's more than that because it wasn't just historically significant, it was spiritually significant. And not in the global context, but especially 
for Peter as an individual. This was a a transformative moment. It made a lasting impact on him because we see in his writing he references it over and over and over. And piled on top of that, leading to his need to share, this was an intensely private event. And of course, that was the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 16 to say, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now before we take a a look at why Peter's talking about this in the context of this letter, let's get a quick refresher of this from the Gospel of Matthew. So the disciples were talking to Jesus about rewards because they're like us, and that's generally what we're concerned about. I can relate. And he replies to them in Matthew chapter 16. We'll start in verse 27. Jesus says to them, he says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. They're like, okay, good. I'll start making a list to make sure you don't miss out on anything. But then he says, assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here, the apostles, who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We move on to chapter 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took the core group of disciples, the privileged three, Peter, James, and John, his brother, He led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and he touched them, and he said, Arise, do not be afraid. But when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. What an awesome experience. And not like, not awesome is like, whoa, awesome. But like the true derivative of the the word, awe. What what an experience full of awe. Something that would capture our our wonder. What an awe-filled, awesome experience. And, And this was such a transformational event to Peter because that, that awe, that reverence, that holy fear of God is what should be one of our primary motivators. 
we see in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, just flip back a, a couple of pages, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, move your bookmark after Sunday's service, because 1 Peter is not to the left of Romans. Let's try this one more time. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Who are kept by the power of God. We who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That ready to be revealed, that's him reaching to the second coming of Christ. We can go down in the same chapter to verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13 is another good one. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, for when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So as Peter seeks to communicate, this event had such an impact on him that the reality of Christ's second coming in power and glory was so real that he almost couldn't help but tie everything back to it. Because in, in order to in order to to fully understand the reality that we're living in presently we have to be aware of we have to acknowledge we have to on the other hand hold the reality of what will come because our understanding of what christ's second coming is going to look like is going to factor into our practical outworking understanding of what christ's power should look like in our lives because imagine if we walked around with a perception of God, a view of God that was as, as powerful and as magnificent as was impressed upon Peter on that mountain, we have to assume that that would make an impact on our lives. Because with, with no awe, with no awe, with no reverence, there can't be any worship. Without any worship, there can't be any fruit. Without any fruit, there's no point. So, so much of our Christian walk has to begin at that place of awe. In a way, Peter is trying to consolidate and condense so much of what he said in his first letter. Because as, as we walked throughout that epistle, it was always, hey, here's the earthly situation, but here's the heavenly reality. And, and who was the bridge between that earthly situation and that heavenly reality except for Jesus Christ? And so he's filling in the dots by saying, let me, let me paint this picture of what Christ reigning on earth will look like. Not in, not in detail, but in splendor. 
When, when you imagine a, a magnificent, a, a glorious place, when you picture heaven in your mind, it's almost more of a feeling than it is, well, no, see over here on the left, it's got this, these wonderfully ornate carvings there, and that's really, I mean, that's just not how we work. That's not how we were designed as humans. That's not how God made us. Yes, we can glorify God for his attributes, for the things that we can write down, for the things that we can put in a list, for the things that we can account for and recount. But just like being with a friend, it's not a list of their personality traits. It's not a list of their qualities that makes them wonderful to be with. It's, it's everything all wrapped up. It's an experience. A friendship, a relationship is an experience. And here Peter is trying to, to share as, as best he can the experience, the reality that heavily impacted him when he witnessed this transfiguration. Now Peter is smart enough to know that he is not going to be able to do the event any sort of justice with words. So I think he attempts to convey this to us by, by making a case for its reality, by making a case for its validity, because if we can't accept what happened, if we can't accept the reality of this event, then how are we ever going to get to the point of how is this going to impact my life today? And I'll, I'll explain more of what I mean about that in a moment, but, but let's look at the, the, the comments he has following his recount of that experience on that high mountain. In verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Cunningly devised fables. This was almost a refutation of everything the world had known up to this point about the interaction of gods and men. They were all stories, fables. Well, I wasn't there, but this has been passed down. And I, there's a good reason for that. Not just because, well, they had to make something up. But stories are so powerful. Because stories help us to experience a set of facts differently, to use all of our senses and, and, and also bring our emotions into that, to have an experience rather than just receive facts. I've tried this recently with my children, and it was at the recommendation of someone else whose children I haven't seen misbehave because I've never met them. Because, okay, I read it in a parenting book because I need that much help. Go, no, you can laugh. 
hey, there's safety found in a multitude of counselors. And there was no safety found in a multitude of toddlers, so I'll take what I can get. <laughs> so I was reading a parenting book. And this author was recounting a situation with her daughters. Her two daughters were repeatedly being intensely rude at the table. And generally well-behaved, nice girls. But whenever they were at the dinner table, they would just say some of the most rude, nastiest things. And, and their parents had tried everything that they could do to try and convey to these girls what they were doing. And without effect. So then they came up or they stumbled upon the idea of, well, let's weave it into a story. So they told the girls about this wonderful princess and how she was so beautiful and so lovely. And, and they described her castle and all the grounds. And then how one day she got an invitation to a wonderful banquet. And they talked about the dress that she wore to the banquet. And then the invitation and everyone who was there. And then she sat down at the banquet. And this wonderful little princess that the girls had come to adore began to say some of the very things, the very rude, inappropriate, nasty things that these very girls were saying at the table. And then they got it. There's power in story. So Peter has to go out of his way to say, I'm, I'm not making up what would be a really interesting event even when we read about the, the gospel accounts of the transfiguration, they're, they're not trying to be beautiful and, and flowery and descriptive with the language, even as we see elsewhere in Scripture. They're just like, this is what happened, and these are the words that we have to describe it. But so Peter makes this case that this is not a fable. This is not a story to capture your attention. And here's how. One, we were eyewitnesses. Peter, James, and John. We were there. Verse 17. For he, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. We saw this. And more than saw this, we heard it. When such a voice came down to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven. And when we look at the account in the gospel, I, I, I found it very interesting that they were more impacted by what they heard than what they saw. I don't know what you do with that. But here they saw Jesus and Moses and Elijah in all of his glory and they were sitting here looking and then that shining cloud comes forward and when that cloud speaks that's when they fall on their faces it sounds it I I don't know what it sounds like it sounds different when I play it out on my mind it sounds like I read it this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and like that's not like the, the, the voice of God that was such a, uh, an awesome moment that they immediately fell on their face in, in, in worship and in fear. More so than, than, than just their eyes and, and their ears, but, but their physical presence. Because I think we've, we've all seen and heard things that we weren't necessarily in proximity to. 
I've read some books about UFOs. And I'm not going to say anything else about that. <laughs> Patrick just looked up real quick. <laughs> Except there can be disagreement around what I saw and what I heard over there. Or police witness statements. But it wasn't, oh yeah, we were at the bottom of the mountain and I saw him up there and then we heard this. No. It says, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's here trying to say this is, this is not a joke, this is, this is not a game, this is not a mass delusion, this isn't a glare in a camera lens, it's not a weather balloon. Grayson got the UFO joke. <laughs> this is what happened. And I can't, even Peter is saying, I can't paint an appropriate picture with words that would, that would even come close to a, a, a shadow of what that experience must have been like. But, but you have to take what we know from Scripture. You have to take what we know from Scripture. You, you have to accept that that's what happens, that that is what happened. And then you need to take that information, and you put it in your theological coffee grinder, and you spin it around until it smells good, then you dump it in the hot water of your brain. You let it percolate a little while. You sift out all the chunks and you take a sip. And that's all you're going to get, but you're still not going to be on the side of a mountain in Colombia. I, I, I can't. The only thing I can do is short sell the majesty of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. But the thing that we do know, amongst all that we don't know, the thing that we do know is why would Peter tell us? Why does, why does Peter say, guys, my death is just around the corner and there are a couple things I always want to have in writing that you would be stirred up, that you would remember these things. So we can then come to the conclusion that, okay, we might not be able, we will not be able to understand the glory of Christ in His second coming until we experience it. But we can answer the question of what good does the limited understanding that we have until its fulfillment, what good does that do us right now? And I think the answer for us tonight on a Wednesday before Thanksgiving is twofold. The first, we've already highlighted. We have become so desensitized and overstimulated that we have to combat that in our hearts and in our minds by cultivating an attitude and an understanding and a perception of awe for what God is doing. 
the longer we have walked with the Lord, the more desensitized to it we can become if we're not careful. Now the flip side of that coin, the, the good thing, I am astonished every time the Lord completely blows my mind. Because every time he completely blows my mind, I say, surely this must be the last time. Like, he can't have another club in the bag. Of, of, of how many times can you just wreck me and, and explode my world and reveal yourself in such a way that it's like seeing you for real for the first time over and over and over again. Our Christian walk is not always going to be that experientially glorious. But in order for our Christian walk to be fruitful, to be hurried up along the process of sanctification, to be God-honoring, we have to always hold in one hand the, the majesty and the insearchability and the hugeness of God's glory and His power. And the glory and power specifically of, of Christ's second coming. Because that's a twofold benefit. Not only is this glory and this power incredible, but but it reminds us of that eternal reality, first in the millennial kingdom and then forever in eternity. That seasons, that puts a lens in front of everything that we experience. And, and the second thing that I think we can take away from this evening is, is exactly where Peter goes. And that's in the times when, when our walk isn't experientially on fleek. I don't know. I didn't have a word there. You would call this perhaps when your experience walking in the, walking with the Lord is, is more of a valley or more of a plain than the mountaintop, right? We all know those mountaintops. The, the thing that can never be taken from us, the thing that never changes, the thing that must be our firm foundation is where Peter goes at the end of chapter 1 in verse 19. And so, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The prophetic word, the scriptures. The way those words are arranged, I think, does not do us any favors in trying to obtain the meaning. It says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. That is a specific reference to when it said, you know, many Old Testament prophets speaking of the second coming of Christ or, or the, the, the reign of Christ Jesus. This did not have to happen. The transfiguration was not necessary. That prophecy will be fulfilled upon the second coming of Christ. 
But this was a, com- this was a confirmation. This was, this was a bonus. This was an additional, hey, you might not be able to wrap your heads around what's going to happen because I have the whole counsel of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, and half the time I can't wrap my head around Isaiah on Wednesday nights, which is why we get to take a break and say words like on fleek for (laughs) the holidays. It says, so the prophetic word, speaking of the scriptures, but also the prophecy specifically of Christ's coming. It says, you would do well to heed this scripture. Now, jump down to the end of that sentence in verse 19. You would do well to heed this scripture in your hearts. Heed it in your hearts as a light that shines in a dark place. The light is, of course, Jesus and Scripture and the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The dark place is this world, this broken world that we live in. We are to honor the Scripture in our hearts to be that light in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises. We look in Revelation and we see that the morning star is Christ. We are to cherish Scripture in our hearts. We are to heed it. We are to honor it in our hearts on those days when we might not have all of our feels in it. On those days when the reality of God, when His presence in our lives, which is not never changing. God is ever present. You can't run, you can't hide. But the way we feel about that relationship can change because circumstances inside and outside of us, what does not change is his word, that confirmed prophetic word. And he goes on to say, verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy for prophecy never came by, by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Scripture. All of Scripture. I don't think people will ever stop arguing about it. I know people won't ever stop arguing about it. But on the days when we're not sure about God, on the days when we can't fathom Him reigning on this earth, much less in our hearts, what never changes and what we need to, to, to hold is the light in our hearts is that understanding that this is the word of God. It doesn't matter that it was written by more than 40 authors, compiled from 66 books over their hundreds, thousands of years. The Holy Spirit indwelt men And in such a miraculous way, authored 
every word that they wrote. Every word. God did not come down to the authors of Scripture and say, you know, could you convey this idea as best you see fit? As long as they take this away as the main point, I'm going to leave it up to you. No, God authored every word, but in a way that did not violate, that did not step on, that did not steal the personality of the author. I, I, I can't even fathom that. That's, that's, that's awesome. How do, you, how do you control every word that, that you would preserve and, and bring to life with your spirit But let Paul write like Paul. And let Peter write like Peter. So much so that we can argue about, well, it says Peter wrote that, but that really doesn't sound like Peter. Without error in its original form. Yeah, we can, we can jump up and down and, and, and throw eggs at this copyist mistake or, 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 or that copyist error. But the farther we go back, the more and more the beauty and truth and preservation of of God's word shines. The darker the world gets, the more it shines. The more broken the world gets, the clearer things become. Because brokenness will never fix itself. There's always an ebb and a flow as people run from God only to return. Not that everyone runs from God and to return, but, but we see that in, in society. Even now, during so much of specifically the, the changes in the medical mandates that are going forward with some transgender therapies. This has been, been playing out long enough that they're, they're seeing some of the damages. People that, that were in, in full support are, are now returning to the truth of questioning of, hey, maybe this is not what's best. Maybe we need to slow down. God's word, it, it, I, I, I can't say it better than, than, than the word is, is, is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. It defends itself. It, it has stood the test of time. It's incredible. It's awesome. So as we go into Thanksgiving, what what better things to be thankful for? That even as Peter writes with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have not only the Holy Spirit within us, not only the same precious faith that he had, but the collection of all the other Spirit-authored scripture. What better thing to be thankful for than the reality is after we have battled, not battled, after we have worshipped 
our way through this broken world that, that we stand to experience, to see firsthand that we might be eyewitnesses of, of the coming of Christ Jesus in glory and power. Father, Lord, you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. You don't change. God, and we only know that because you say it in your word. You say it in James, so we can read it and we can hold on to that. We can put that in our hearts like a light. Father, thank you for how you meet us. Thank you for how you meet us in your word. Thank you for how you meet us through your spirit. Father, thank you for how you meet us as a body of believers coming together as a church. Father, help us to take this light away from here into our homes and to dinner tables tomorrow. Shine it. Father, fill us first with your love, but fill us so abundantly that we would spill out on everybody that we bump into. We praise you this season, Lord, and we do so in your son's name. Amen.